0: How many of you have a vegetable garden in your yard? A lot of people do? Okay. Uh, this, this summer is the first time. We've been in roaring spring now at this house for about 16 years. I used to have a, a vegetable garden when we lived in East Freedom, in a big yard, and we just didn't have time since the kids were small and, and kind of you run them from place to place on the weekends. You know how that goes when the kids are in sports and all that. So we, we haven't done a vegetable garden until this year. First time we've done one. And this is a, a picture of our vegetable garden. And I understand, it's nothing impressive. It's not very big. You're probably like, that's a stupid garden. Mine's better. That's fine. Yours is better than mine. Uh, but we're having a lot of fun with, with this vegetable garden. And uh, most of you, I think, whether you've got a garden or no or, or you don't, most of you know that a vegetable garden, a healthy one, doesn't just pop up out of nowhere, right? That's not how it works. In this particular one, because... The previous owner had uh, some garden there, I don't know, 20 years ago, whatever. The soil underneath was still good. But I had to get to it because I planted grass. And for the last 16 years, it's just been grass. So I had to mark it out and I had to shovel out the sod in, in this garden, put it in a wheelbarrow, and take it somewhere else. I had my father in law come with a rototiller tiller and he tilled up the soil. We prepared the soil. And then Angie and I went, we bought some healthy plants, and we very carefully and intentionally planted the healthy plants in the proper places. There's instructions. I don't know if you knew that, but there's little instructions that come uh, with the plants on uh, how to plant them in the full sun, or some of them need to be put into bunches, and others need a little more space. There's instructions. So we very carefully read those and and planted the plants, and then I, I put... Uh, fence uh, around the garden so that the rabbits and skunks and whatever else critters or, you know, in our neighborhood don't get in and, and eat all of the vegetables out of our garden. We also make sure that we get in there. Now, there's some weeds there. Now, you can see some weeds, but we, we've been getting out there and pulling the weeds out of the garden so that the weeds don't, don't choke the plants. Gardens, healthy ones need the sun. Healthy gardens need to be watered. Healthy gardens need to have nourishment that comes from the soil itself, or sometimes you put fertilizer into, into, the, into the ground. But healthy, a healthy vegetable garden doesn't just pop up out of nowhere. It requires attention. It requires protection. The same thing, and you know this to be true, the same thing is true of your marriage. The same thing is true of a healthy family. The same thing is true of a healthy church. Healthy marriages, healthy families, healthy churches don't just happen by accident. They require certain things to grow. They require protection from things that would cause them harm. And as we visit this next city on our tour through the seven churches of Revelation, we're going to be visiting Thyatira this morning in Revelation chapter 2. We're going to find out from the, this visit in Thyatira what it, what it takes to have a healthy church. Have you ever wondered that? Have you ever wondered wonder what it takes to have a healthy marriage? What's it take to have a healthy family? What does it require of us to have a healthy Church. Well, a healthy church is made up of healthy leaders, spiritually healthy leaders, and spiritually healthy families. If you would, join me in Revelation chapter 2. I'm going to start in verse 18 this morning. Thyatira was, was founded by one of Alexander the Great's successors. His name was Seleucus. And it was founded as what we call like a fortress town. It was there for a reason to protect Pergamum. Remember Pergamum last week? This this elaborate, royal, beautiful, big city. Well, what they would do is they would they would plant other towns, other other cities uh, farther out, and they they would be there to protect the more important cities. And and Thyatira was one of those. I've got. Some slides here, I wanted to show you. Here is uh, a sign when you get to the park. So, there's not a lot of ancient ruins that are excavated or exposed. Imagine in a, th- in a thriving big city and you have a small park in the middle of it, only this one has ancient ruins. And so, here's some of the pictures from this park. And you can see some of the columns from some of the uh, temples, the pagan temples that would have existed. Go to the next slide. Different angle. Go to the next slide. This would be an example of some of the things that you would see written on some of the pillars. Uh, they would write things like, uh, in honor of, and be a particular... Uh, Roman emperor, perhaps, or a, a wealthy benefactor that would have uh, financed a particular building. That, that still happens today, and it was the same back then. Now if you go to the next slide, just another angle of, uh, of this park. So just a park in the middle of the city with some of these ancient rooms. There's really not a lot. Most of the city of Thyatira, the ancient city, is underneath, just like Pergamum, underneath the modern city. And they really don't want to dig up their businesses and their homes to get to it. This is from the museum. Uh, It's an example of some of the things that they produced in Thyatira. Thyatira was a blue-collar town. I want you to think of Thyatira as like Pittsburgh. There were a lot... It was a union town. It was a blue-collar town. And they had a lot of trades, a lot of guilds. And uh, here are some examples of pottery. It was also, as you know, a, a pagan town, all of these cities that we've been to. Uh, these are some examples of some of the idols uh, in the museum that they excavated up out of the ground different places throughout the city. But a big union town known for uh, things like metal smelting, uh, that reminds me of Pittsburgh and the steel mills over there. Uh, it, it also... Uh, was very close. There were farms all around the town, so they had a thriving farm-to-table industry there as, as well. So It was a working-class town with lots of, of unions, and uh, you'd have a, a union for, for everything, the, the weavers and, and the, the people who did the dyeing. Now, interesting thing about those who came up with the, the dye, uh, if you go back, if you're able to go back, We're going to look at um, Lydia in just a moment. She was in the book of Acts, and she's from Thyatira. But you can kind of see the purplish color to that, and you may have known that colors like royal blue and purple in the ancient world were very difficult, very expensive because it was very difficult. It would take 10,000 snails. That's how you would get certain colored dyes. There were certain snails, and you'd crush those up. 10,000 snails to get a thimble worth of royal blue dye. So you see why that would be labor intensive and why those things were so expensive. Now we have other ways to do that, but that would be an example. And there was unions for bakers and unions for people who made pottery, unions for shoemakers and doctors and teachers and painters, musicians and bronze smiths, anything you could think of. There was a guild. There was a a union for that. And the unions, as we've Uh, already said uh, each week, the unions, the guilds, they are tied to the pagan temples. The pagan temples are the banks. It's all one pagan system within the city. And so if you didn't worship, in this case, in the city of Thyatira, Apollo, if you did not worship Apollo, if you didn't come to the union meeting because you knew as a Christian that there was going to be idol worship, that there was going to be sexual perversion happening at the union meeting. If you didn't show up, you could lose your job because uh, you were putting the guild at at risk of Apollo being mad or or whatever. And it reminds us, uh, especially this past week and what we saw, it reminds us that what you believe about God matters. What you believe about God matters matters. Some of us are kind of scratching our heads and, and maybe sick in our stomach when we see some of the reaction of people that, that apparently want so badly to, to kill unborn babies. And, and we look at that and we don't get it. We can't make sense of, of this visceral reaction. But if you go to the starting point of that and you don't believe there is no God, right? You're, you don't believe there's a God. If you don't believe there is an eternal soul, there's no such thing as heaven, there's no such thing as, as hell, we're just, uh, we are just physical machines that when we're dead, we're dead. If, if that's what you believe about God and eternity, well, then those things make absolute sense to that person. It doesn't make sense to us because we do believe that God exists and there is an eternal soul and that life begins at conception. We, we, we believe these things because of what we believe about God. What you believe about God obviously matters. We get to verse 18 and we find out uh, that Jesus is addressing a church where you had some in this church that what they believed about God mattered to them and they were willing to risk losing their jobs. They were willing to risk being uh, pushed out of of society and friendships for the sake of, of their faith in Jesus. We also see that there's people in this city, uh, what they believed about God impacted the way that they viewed the world and the way that they viewed other people. So here we go. Uh, Verse 18, write this letter. Jesus says, write this letter to the angel, to the elder, to the pastor of the church in Thyatira. This is the message from the Son of God, whose eyes are like flames of fire, whose feet are like polished bronze. Now that you know some things about Thyatira, that image that Jesus is describing himself in makes a lot of sense, right? You've got this uh, metal smelting town. That, that image means something to the people in Thyatira. And he says in verse 19, I know all the things you do, your good deeds. I have, I've seen your love, I've seen your faith, I've seen your service, and your patient endurance and I can see your constant improvement in all these things. Jesus commends them, commends these Christians for their their good deeds, their love, their faith, their their service, this perseverance that they displayed in the face of persecution. And we talked about this in every city so far. It's not easy to to be a Christian in in these ancient cities. And it's not just like you know, let's go back to Pittsburgh. Let's say that you live in Pittsburgh and you're a Philadelphia Eagles fan and you wear a Philadelphia Eagles jersey to work in Pittsburgh at the steel mill or, or wherever you work. Uh, you're going to get harassed, right? You're, you're probably going to have people that are going to say something to you about that and there's going to be pressure like, you're terrible or whatever, but you're probably not going to lose your job because you're a Philadelphia Eagles fan living in Pittsburgh you go back, though, in time, uh, if, if, you, if you refused to participate in all the pagan things, man, that, it wasn't just like, oh, you're, you're weird, uh, or you, know, you can't be my friend. There, there were serious risks that you could lose your job, lose your income, maybe go to jail, maybe in some cases even die. So it was, uh, it was a, what you believed really mattered. Interesting story. I think I alluded to it in Acts In Acts chapter 16, uh, the Apostle Paul goes to Philippi on one of his missionary journeys and went down to the river where people would gather to pray. And there were some people who had gathered there to pray, and he's going to share the gospel with them. And one of the people that he met was this lady named Lydia. And it says in Acts 16, verse 14, that one of the ladies that he met, her name was Lydia from Thyatira. And she was a merchant of expensive purple cloth. And it says that she was a God worshiper and she listened to the gospel. The Lord opened her heart and she accepted what Paul was saying and she got baptized. Her whole family got, got baptized. And it's just a reminder to us that, to, to question, wonder what that meant for her in her business. You know, she's, she's doing well, she has a house which is very unusual for a woman in the ancient world to have a household and and to have wealth like this. That was uncommon at the time. And so what's that going to mean for her to be a follower of Jesus in the ancient world? What's that going to mean for her business? Those are real questions that would have faced someone like Lydia. We go on back to Revelation chapter 2, if we go to verse 20. So he's commending them for having strong faith and growing in love and service, all these good things, this this group of people in in this local church. But then he says, but I have this complaint against you. You are permitting that woman, that Jezebel, not a real name. No one names their kid Jezebel. uh, It's a a name that Jesus is assigning to a, a woman at the time who was a false prophet, a woman who was leading people, Christians, uh, into idol worship, which is the reference goes back to the original Jezebel, which in the Old Testament, that's what she did. So that Jezebel who calls herself a prophet to lead my servants astray, she teaches them to commit sexual sin, to eat food offered to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to turn away from her immorality." So she was telling people, telling these Christians in this church, listen, you don't want to lose your job. Yeah, it's fine. Go to the meeting. Go to the union meeting. What do you, what do you, does God want you to starve? Does God want you to lose your job and, and uh, lose your home? God loves you more than that. Uh, so just go to the meeting. It'll be fine. God will understand. This is what, and, and you know, you can participate in the idol worship, you don't, you don't really mean it. You know, just, you know, do the, do the thing and uh, whatever they're asking you to do, just kind of play the game, play the system. And, uh, and there were some people in that church that were buying into that, that were listening to her. And it's interesting that Jesus says he gave her time to repent of this, but she wouldn't. We'll come back to that. Verse 22, there's a consequence for that. Therefore, I will throw her on a bed of suffering, which is a reference to some things that would happen... In the union meeting, in the guild, Uh, one of the things, they would idol worship, and then they would have couches, beds, if you will, uh, at the union meetings, and there would be prostitutes and these types of things that would take place. So he's using this image. I'll throw her on a bed of suffering, and those who commit adultery with her will suffer greatly unless they repent and turn away from her evil deeds. I will strike her children dead. Well, this is pretty severe. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who searches out the thoughts and intentions of every person, and I will give to each of you whatever you deserve. But I also have a message for the rest of you. It wasn't the whole church. We don't have a percentage. We don't know if it was 90-10 or what the percentage was, uh, but there was, there was a certain group within the church that, that was following after this Jezebel and her teaching, and there was another group that was not, that they were being faithful. And he says, I have this message for the rest of you who have not followed this false teaching, the, quote, deeper truths, as they call them, which are actually depths of Satan. I will ask nothing more of you except that you hold tightly to what you have until I come. Just keep being faithful. Keep growing in love. Keep growing in service. Keep, keep growing in your faith and persevere. That's all Jesus is asking of them. Says, I'll take care, I'll take care of Jezebel. To all who are victorious, who obey me to the very end, to them I will give authority over all the nations. They will rule the nations with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. Another reference to this, this town. You have the, the clay pot union, and that's one of the things that uh, this town was, was known for. To them I will give authority over all the nations. They will rule the nations with an iron rod. They will smash them like clay pots. They will have the same authority I received from my Father, and I will also give them the morning star. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what He is saying to the churches. You know, in some ways... I don't know if you've started to feel this way or you know kind of think this way. Uh, I guess I kind of am. In some ways, what Jesus is saying to this church might start to feel like watching the, the shows about Alaska that my wife loves to watch every week. Uh, it's the same thing every week, and so she loves them. She she loves these shows. And, you know, I, I could watch the first one, and I could watch one two years later. It'd be the same show. Basically, it's this. I, you know, I'll be a person on the show. I live in Alaska, and it's cold, and it's hard to live here, and we go hunting, and then we get up and we do it all again the next day. And, and it's the same thing. And at some point, I just look at my wife, and I'm like, I get it. It's hard to live in Alaska. Why? If you don't like it, move, right? I, I don't understand why you're still there. And maybe that's kind of how this this feels, this this criticism of Jezebel might sound like, we we just heard that. We heard that last week with Balaam. We heard it the week before with the followers of the the Nicolaitans. You know, you you got this repetitive theme of bad theology and, and idol worship and sexual immorality. It's like week after week, the same thing. And maybe you're at the point like, okay, I get it. But there is something here in Thyatira that we haven't talked about yet. Healthy churches, healthy marriages, healthy families don't just pop up out of nowhere. They don't happen by accident. They require certain things to grow, and they require certain protections to make sure there are things outside that don't creep in and cause harm. Now, I find it fascinating that Jesus will sometimes, according to this, Sometimes Jesus will intervene and he will protect his church from those who are harming it. And in this case, he's about to blow up some people's lives in a serious way. Like people were going to die. Jesus said he was going to bring some pretty harsh judgment down on this Jezebel character and the people around her. And I find that interesting that uh, that Jesus tells the believers at Thyatira, guys, listen, I'll take care of Jezebel. You guys just keep doing what you're doing. You, you continue to be faithful in love and be faithful in serving, be, be faithful in, uh, in, in worship. I'll take care of this. But you do notice, even though Jesus is intervening here and taking care of this issue in their church, he's protecting this church, he does criticize them for tolerating it. For tolerating bad doctrine, for tolerating sin. So here's what we we can pull out from that. We we know that Jesus expects us to confront wrong doctrine. We know that he expects us as as a church to, to confront sin. Jesus expects us to intentionally care for The spiritual health of our church, just like we would care for the health of our vegetable garden that we know needs nourishment to grow, we know it needs protection from the things that want to get in there and cause harm, spiritually healthy churches have spiritually healthy leaders. Does that blow your mind? Probably not. Spiritually healthy churches are made up of spiritually healthy families. That probably doesn't rock your world either. It, it probably wouldn't shock you to know or to hear that spiritually unhealthy people, spiritually unhealthy families will result in a spiritually unhealthy church. Does that make sense? That probably, like, what? That's probably not your reaction to that. That line of reasoning probably makes sense. And it's not just leaders. Yes, this letter is addressed to the leaders. And yes, church leaders are responsible to teach biblical truth, to live out biblical truth, absolutely. But if you are part of our church family... Then you are responsible to learn biblical truth. You are responsible to live out biblical truth, to have a biblical worldview, to live a Jesus centered life. It's it's not just the choices of the leadership that impact the local church, the health of your marriage impacts our church. For the better or for the worse. the the spiritual health of your family, the spiritual health of you as an individual follower of Christ impacts our church for the good or for the bad. that means that we all, it's not just me and the leaders here at Grace Fellowship, we all have a responsibility to nourish our faith, to make sure that our soul is fertilized and watered, that it receives lots of sunshine. Now, what are we talking about? We're not, we're not talking about getting a tan, right? We're, we're not we're, this is spiritual things we're talking about here. We do those spiritual things. The, the nourishment, the sunshine, the, the water, the nutrients, that comes from studying the word of God. That's your responsibility. It's mine, but it's yours as well. Time alone with God. Learning good theology. I don't know if you have a study Bible that has some comments in it, or if you have a commentary, or if you have some some books on your shelf that has some basic theology in it. If you don't, you should. We should be learning and growing in our faith and and making the effort to learn. Learn. I know it's fun and easy to show up on Sunday morning and say, Pastor, I have a question. It's fine. I I love answering questions. Uh, Don't get me wrong. That's fine. Uh, Continue to ask questions. But, boy, we need to take responsibility as followers of Christ to be learning and growing and reading. It's important that we make time to be with other believers, which you are. You're here. You're making worship a priority. You're making fellowship with others, believers, a priority. It also means that we have to take the protection of our spiritual garden, our heart, seriously. Where we put up the the fence, where we put up the guardrails, where we pull the weeds out of our hearts, the things that don't belong in our lives, we get rid of them to protect our hearts from harm. And, And just like you know, picking rocks and, and pulling weeds out of the garden. I know it's not the most fun thing to do. I get that. What's the most fun thing to do about a a, a garden? The most fun thing is to go out and get the tomato off the tomato plant and go enjoy it. That's what we love to do, to, to get the zucchini and, and make zucchini bread. Well, those things are lots of fun. But it's just as important to get out there and do the things that maybe aren't as fun but they're necessary To to pull the weeds, and, and, and depict the rocks. And I understand that can be tricky. It's easy to stand here and say, well, we need, to, we need to do these things, especially within the church context, because it is biblical. But I don't want to make it sound like it's easy, because we know that Jesus was, was not a fan of legalistic Pharisees. You know that, right? was not a fan of the legalistic Pharisees, you know these people that would go around and just kind of looking for shortcomings in other people's lives. Most of which, these shortcomings were standards that they had made up. And so, uh, for me, when I, when I read this, when I think about this topic, I, I wonder to myself, how are we supposed to live this out? How, how are we supposed to confront bad ideas and confront bad behavior without becoming a legalistic meter cop that just runs around looking for shortcomings in other people's lives and cutting them down. So I want to start with what Jesus taught, because I think that there's some really good uh, information and principles that are found within the Word of God to help us do this the correct way and to do it in a way that's beneficial. So I'm going to go back to, to Matthew 18. Let's just start there. We'll work through a couple passages together. And we'll see if we can get a, a, a full understanding. There's more to say about it, but let's try to get at least a, a full understanding of what it means to, uh, to be picking weeds out of the garden, whether that's in our own lives or to help each other in a local church. In Matthew 18, if you start in verse 15, it says, if another believer, this is Jesus talking, this is, so these are instructions from Jesus, if another believer sins against you. Now, because New Living and IV both have a, a footnote. So I'm not sure what you have in your lap, but the footnote says that not all of the ancient manuscripts have the phrase in it against you. So it's very possible that the original uh, thing that Jesus said was, if a brother sins. Now, it could be against you. Or it could be that it just there's sin in, in a brother's life, in, a, in another believer's life. And you know about it. What do we do with that? Well, either way, the first thing Jesus says to do about it is to go privately to point out the offense. To, to maybe share how they've offended you or hurt you. Or if it's not a sin against you in, in particular, uh, there's a sin in this, in this person's life. You care about them, you love them, and you, you're going to go and share with them this, this needs to stop or whatever it is do it privately, point out the offense. This is not where we get on Facebook and blurt it out, right? It's not where we uh, where we start talking about this person. Did you hear him? That's It's not right. Don't do that. Jesus says, go to the person privately. And if the other person listens and confesses, you've won that person back. So if they repent, you've either restored the relationship between you and this other person, or if it wasn't against you, you've you've helped restore their relationship with God. But if that doesn't happen, if you are unsuccessful, Jesus said, take one or two others with you, go back again, so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. Now, this, this is a reference. This uh, second step goes back to the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 19. It says, One witness is not enough to convict a man accused of a crime or an offense. He may have committed. A matter must be established by a testimony or two or three witnesses. The point is, there's a proper way to handle these things. And so if that doesn't work, what's the next thing? If that doesn't work, the next thing, if the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. Now, now it gets a little trickier. So what does, that, what does that mean? How do we define the church? On a Sunday morning, imagine this, a Sunday morning, you have uh, a gathering like this, a gathering like the second service. You might have people that aren't believers. They're not part of the church. You might have people in the room that this is their first Sunday here. Imagine during announcement times, uh, you're, you're going through the announcements. Hey, we've got the, the camp chapel that we're giving to, and oh yeah, by the way, I'm not going to say anyone's name. I don't want to, you know. Uh, Festus. Is running around on his wife and he refuses to repent, and so you all need to get in his face about it. Can you imagine an announcement like that? It'd be rough, right? And I don't know that that's really what Jesus was communicating. So, how would we, how would we do it? I think we would need to, but, but how? So, maybe that would be uh, one way to get to that would be the, the members, the partners. We would have a meeting. Just for the members, just for the partners, and maybe we would discuss it there. And how are we going to handle this? How do we how do we help this brother, or this sister, uh, repent? How do, how do we how do we do that? Uh, and then maybe maybe it's a small group. Let's say a person's in a small group, and so the people who are closest to that person, relationally, maybe maybe they're the ones that are part of the church that go and and have that conversation. My point is, it's not it's not just a super easy thing yes it's awkward but you need to make sure we would need to make sure that we did that in a way that uh is consistent with the church right uh if the person still refuses to listen take your case to church if then he or she won't accept the church's decision then the final step treat that person as a pagan or a corrupt tax collector uh that has to do with if someone is a pagan or a tax collector, how would you treat them? Well, you treat them like someone who's not saved, someone who doesn't know the Lord, someone who needs to hear the gospel. Now, I think it's important to jump down a few verses because on the other side of this, Peter then in verse 21 comes up to Jesus and says, "Hey, Jesus, uh, you just told us about you know this brother and he sins and then he repents uh, and then you know it's restored." But let's say that the very next week, he does the same thing. He, he makes fun of me, or he's mean to me, and then I go and I confront him the next week, and I say, hey, what you said was not okay. Uh, the way you treated me was not okay. Oh, you're right. You're, you're right. I'm sorry. Uh, I, I, I agree with you. I was in the wrong, and I'm sorry. Okay, you've restored the relationship. Week three, same thing happens. This guy loses his temper or whatever. And, and Peter says to Jesus... Uh, how many times do I have to forgive this guy? Seven times, and uh, Jesus' response to to Peter is pretty famous. No, Jesus says not seven times, but seventy times seven, or seventy times seventy. And uh, the the idea being, you need to, if if the person repents, if the person says agrees with you that they're in the wrong and says I'm sorry, uh, that the forgiveness is is demanded. Galatians six one I think is another important verse to put into this conversation where where Paul writes to the the believers, brothers, if someone's caught in a sin, you who are spiritually mature should restore him gently. Now, it's assuming repentance, right? You go through the steps and the person repents, restore that person gently. But he also says, but watch yourself, be careful because you might be tempted uh, to sin in this whole process. So Paul's getting across the point that gentle restoration with a humble heart is how this process should happen. It's, it's not running around looking for shortcomings in other people's lives so that you can tear them down and make them feel awful about themselves. It's, it's, this is a conversation of love, uh, of grace, of humility. In fact, Jesus talks about that in Matthew chapter 7. He says, You need to be very careful uh, about judging others. And he gives this illustration about. You, you want to go and, and, and get the sawdust, the speck of sawdust, sawdust out of your brother's eye? Yeah, maybe you better take care of the plank, the log in your own eye, before you go and, and try to get the sawdust out of your brother's eye. The point Jesus was making is, yeah, it's important that we help our brothers and sisters with the things in their lives that, that aren't good, that shouldn't be there. That's important. But we need to make sure we've got a real healthy dose of humility When we do that, it says, you know what? I've blown it too. I've messed up too. So I'm not coming at this conversation as someone who's perfect either. Do you see the difference of what that would look like if you came in with a log plank in your own eye with no awareness uh, of that or, or acting like it's no big deal? There's a log hanging out of your eye. That's fine, but your sawdust is a big deal. There needs to be humility and gentleness in this. But it needs to be dealt with. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there was a man in the Corinthian church that was having sexual relations with a stepmom. And Paul says, Guys, even the pagans in your city thinks that, think that that is gross and wrong. And you're running around proud that you're so tolerant. Paul says, No, that's, that's not okay. You need to deal with this sin issue. And it wasn't just sexual immorality that Paul talked to. He talked about greed. He talked about idolatry and slander and drunkenness and shady business deals. And his point was, you deal with it if they refuse to repent. If they refuse to deal with that sin, then don't associate with them. Following Matthew 18, Paul's point was you need to pull the weed out and get rid of it because it'll affect the garden in a negative way. Titus three, Paul writes to Pastor Titus and says, "Warn a divisive person once, then warn him a second time. You know what divisiveness is, right? Going around causing trouble, complaining about this and complaining about just, just trying to stir the pot, uh, talking about other people or complaining about a bunch of different stuff." And uh, he, he says, "Warn him once, warn him twice, and then have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that a man is warped and sinful; he is self." condemned. So we take all of this information. There's more, but that's, uh, I think, a good sample to give us somewhat of a full understanding of, yeah, it's important to deal with, with sin, to pull the weeds, and to make sure that we keep our fence uh, in, in good shape and to help each other in that. But I just want to kind of share with you the reality. In, in 20 years of ministry, I haven't had, thankfully. Thankfully, I haven't had a lot of times when I've had to have these hard conversations. I could probably count them on a hand. But I have had to do that. I've had, over 20 years of ministry, a few of those conversations. I've had, at times, to to work through Matthew 18. And I can just tell you this, it's not fun. You know, it's like picking picking weeds and pulling rocks. It's not not fun. But it's been mind-blowing to me, and the times that I've had to do that, Again, small amount, but in the times I've had to do it, it blows my mind that 90% of the time, that person digs in. Like, you read these things, this Jezebel and this guy in, in, in Corinth, you read it's like, why are they digging in until they get kicked out of the church? 90% of the time when I've had to confront sin over 20 years, the person digs in and nothing wrong with me. It's you. You're the problem. Or they blame somebody else. They refuse to listen. They refuse to repent. And it blows my mind because it's like, I'm telling you, if if two or three elders or two or three other pastors or two or three other Christians, who were like faithful Christians, solid, Jesus-loving Christians came to me and said, Pastor Mark, what you said or what you did, this and your, it's, it's not right. And, and if someone, if that happened, I would be devastated. I would be crushed. So it, it makes me wonder, what, what is it? How does this hard-hearted response happen? Because I'm telling you it happens. Why are, let's expand it. Why are there some churches who throughout the month of June have been celebrating homosexuality? Why are there some churches who are who have been performing same-sex marriages and and uh, have homosexual pastors? Why? Listen, I'm not on social media, okay? But I'm confident that if you are, you probably saw some some posts from Christians who are upset about the pro-life movement having a win in in Roe v. Wade being right. There's Christians who are promoting abortion. How how does that happen? I think it happens when we don't care for our own spiritual garden. I think it happens when we allow ourselves to become complacent and lazy and distracted in our faith. When we let the fence in disrepair so that things that shouldn't be in our life are able to get in and do damage in our hearts and in our minds. When we don't nourish our souls with the word of God and prayer and the fellowship of other faithful believers. It's Interesting, in Thyatira, in that city, a Christian could be plucked out of the union, plucked out of the guild like a bad weed for not worshiping Apollo. That was a reality. So I want you to imagine the tension of that as a Christian in the first century. This this question running in your mind, if I don't go to the union meeting and, and participate, I could lose my job. But if I do go to the union meeting and I participate, I might be tempted to compromise my faith with idol worship and other sins. That was a real decision that people had to make. And there were two responses in that church. There was was a response of faithfulness, those who did not compromise, and there was the response of those who did, the unfaithful. And it makes me wonder, what is the difference between the two? They both lived in the same city. They both attended the same church. They both heard the same gospel. And they both faced the same tension. And yet one responded one way with faithfulness and one responded with unfaithfulness. What's the difference? I believe it is the faithful who were willing to nourish their soul, nourish their hearts, and protect their spiritual garden. So I'll finish with just a couple questions. First of all, we keep with this analogy of the garden. Is there, is there life in your garden? Without trusting Jesus as your forgiver of sin, without trusting Jesus as your savior from hell and the Lord of your life, there's, there's no spiritual life in your garden. You are spiritually dead, which is bad news. But here's the good news. The good news is that Jesus died on the cross as a sacrificial payment, a substitute payment for your sin and for my sin. He rose from the dead three days later, proving his victory over sin, proving his victory over death so that your spiritually dead soul could become alive, so that you could and I could bear much spiritual fruit. Think about your life and what you want your life to look like, what you want your life to be. Do you want a life of of satisfaction and contentment? I think most people would say, yeah, I'd rather have that than than the opposite. This is what Jesus offers through spiritual fruit, a life of satisfaction, a life of contentment, a life of purpose, of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. These are the fruits of the Spirit, That Jesus grows in our lives through the power of His Spirit. These are the things that grow in a healthy spiritual garden in our lives through Jesus. So, if you don't have that, the way to experience spiritual life in your metaphorical garden, in your soul, is to trust Jesus as your forgiver, as your Savior. And for those of us who have life in our garden, spiritual life in our lives, from our faith in Jesus, here's the challenge, you, me, we are responsible to work with Jesus, to nourish and protect the garden of our hearts, Jesus is the one who provides the nourishment He's the one who provides the protection. He is the water. He is the sun. He's the miracle grow. He's the fence. He's the weed puller. But it's our responsibility to give Jesus access to the garden, to work with him in the garden. Jesus doesn't go around and and, and force his way into these spaces. He's got to be invited. Yes, sometimes churches have to deal with sin. Sometimes weeds have to be pulled. Sometimes, this this is tough to imagine, but sometimes Jesus intervenes and blows people's lives up that aren't doing the right thing. That's kind of scary. And they're not pleasant experiences, any of it. But if we would each make absolute sure that every day we are being faithful in caring for, in in, in nourishment and protection of our spiritual lives, the spiritual gardens of our hearts. If we each take that responsibility seriously, then it's going to impact in a very positive way our marriages. It's going to impact in a very positive way our families, our leadership. It will impact in a very positive way the health of our church. Those kinds of measures aren't going to be needed. You take a look at the spiritual garden of your heart this week. That's the challenge. I, I love you, and, and I would do anything to, to help you and come alongside you. If you needed help in a particular area of, of struggle, I absolutely would do whatever I could do to help you with that. But it's possible that I don't know about it. It's possible that there's something going on in your life that's private and and you haven't let anybody into that space and it's just it's kind of uh, building on itself and snowballing and and maybe at some point it'll blow up and just know that, that we love you and, and I love you and, and we'll do whatever we can to to help help minister in those spaces when lives explode and 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 we don't want it to get there. We don't want that to happen. I also love you enough to say it's your responsibility. I'm not, Pastor Tim doesn't, uh, Pastor Kid. We we don't go around and look for shortcomings in your life. That's not what we do all week. I got enough problems in my own heart. Believe me, that that I'm asking God to 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 work in. I don't have time to go around looking for shortcomings in your life. And so. So we have to all take this responsibility seriously that that I'm responsible for the garden of my soul yeah I, I love you and I'll, I'll help I'll help but you're responsible you're responsible for the spiritual health of your marriage the spiritual health of your family the spiritual health that then impacts this local church does that make sense How about I end it this way let's let's get out there this week and do some gardening how about it